Lord, we do come seeking your word, your truth, your message to our hearts. Pray, Lord, that you would open your scriptures, continue to open to us an understanding of your plan for your world, for your church, and for us. Lord, open my lips that my mouth would proclaim your praise. O Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may go ahead and be seated. I shared a couple of weeks ago about how when I was in high school, I was encouraged by some of my youth leaders to join with about 10,000 other high school students in our nation's capital for a week of evangelism, hoorah, and training. Right? We heard all like uh, the great motivational youth speakers of the day, had concerts by none other than Michael W. Smith and DC Talk. I know I'm dating myself. Uh, we received a lot of training in how to very succinctly and clearly share the gospel message of Jesus Christ, you know, in sort of a short elevator pitch, not to be crass sounding about it, but a short elevator pitch. And then we were turned loose on the streets of Washington, D.C., given a little survey, uh, a spiritual survey, and told to go and to strike up conversations with people by asking them, hey, do you have a couple minutes to answer a few short questions? And then trying to steer that conversation to a presentation of the good news about Jesus Christ. I have to say, I do not feel like that was a super effective way, at least for me, to reach out and share with people about the good news. I tried a couple times, and I'll be perfectly honest, I spent the rest of the day sightseeing in Washington, D.C. with my good friend. But this morning, as we continue our series from the book of Acts, we encounter Saints Paul and Barnabas bringing God's gospel presence into another, actually three other, gospel-deficient areas. And what we see is that they didn't start with a brief survey about spiritual things. Hello, man on the street in Lystra. Could you just take five minutes and answer a couple questions with me? So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. Because in this passage, we'll see three specific things about how God's gospel presence came into this area. We will see how the gospel comes with power. The gospel comes with persecution. And the gospel comes with a plan. Yes, I did it again. It must be like my quarterly time to actually hit an alliteration. But it comes with gospel power, gospel persecution, and a gospel plan. The gospel comes with power. We read in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. This was no, uh, yeah, I think maybe I'm a little better. You know, I, I think maybe my headache went away when you prayed for me. I'm not sure, but maybe. This was a display of power so dramatic that the locals think surely the gods are among us. 
there was no other explanation to these people for how a man that they knew had been crippled his entire life could be walking around. There was not another way to account for a healing this dramatic. And the pagans interpret it through the only lens they know. The gods are doing something among us. They weren't far from right, actually. The presence of God was among them to heal. Their traditional pagan understanding was just insufficient to understand it rightly. And so Paul needs to stop their inadvertent blaspheming, right, and explain the gospel to them. No, we are not gods, but God is here, right, present through Jesus Christ. Because that was the point of this display, to gain a hearing for the gospel, for the good news, It's through this miracle that Paul and Barnabas are received by the people and gain a platform. Here again, we see this demonstration of the apostles cooperating with the Spirit of God to bring God's gospel presence into a gospel-deficient place. St. Paul will say to another church he established in Corinth, when he came to them, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The message about the king came with a demonstration of Christ's kingly authority, Christ's kingly power. Throughout the Gospels, we read about Jesus making such demonstrations. In fact, when St. John the Forerunner is uh, imprisoned, and he's concerned that, you know, he sort of staked his entire life at this point, literally, on Jesus. He actually sends a couple of his disciples, right, to inquire of Jesus. Are you the Messiah or are we to look for another? What does Jesus say to those disciples as he sends him back to John? He says this, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus demonstrated his lordship by displaying the kingly power that the Old Testament had promised he would. Throughout the New Testament, we see the early church relying on these same signs of the kingly authority of Jesus to convict and convince the ancient world of the validity of their message about Jesus. Throughout the ages, God has maintained this same witness. All of the great revivals of history, from the Celtic evangelization of the British Isles to the revival movement led by St. Francis of Assisi to the first and second great awakenings in the colonial America, the Orthodox monks of Mount Athos and the East African revival, Christ continues to confirm his authority through signs. And miracles. Yeah, sometimes people within those movements get carried away. But can you blame people for being overly enthusiastic when they have experienced a real movement of God in their midst? Friends, the message of Jesus Christ as Lord, God's appointed King of heaven and earth, that message that we call the gospel can, and I would dare even say should, be accompanied by real-world demonstrations of the king's authority. He is not king in name only. 
He delights in showing his rule in and through his people, the church. And so again, we need to cultivate that expectation of divine visitation. That expectation of the breaking in of the supernatural. But at the same time, while I will insist to my dying breath that we can and should expect the supernatural to come down and to touch our lives and our world, the gospel can still also be proclaimed with power, even through far more seemingly mundane behaviors as well. In the adult formation hour this morning, we talked about the text from St. Peter's first letter, which he gave the title, which actually gave the title for this entire sermon and teaching series, Becoming a Provocative Church. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The idea is simply this. Far too often Christians latch onto that verse heaven help us, especially the preachers and leaders. And we hold it out there as this call to be, you know, sort of getting out there and, 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 and having more spiritual conversations. Get out there and do more to share your Christian hope. But when we jump right to that conclusion, we miss the power of that verse. The first phrase is the critical point. In your hearts, set apart Christ Jesus as holy. Live the early church's credo, Jesus is Lord. Because that will have a noticeable impact on behavior. One that might get noticed by others. And when they ask about it, then be prepared to answer. Earlier in that same letter, St. Peter calls on the early Christians to conduct themselves in such a way that even though their pagan neighbors might ridicule and even falsely accuse them, which apparently was the case in the first century, falsely accuse them of all sorts of things. He said, lead such lives among these Gentiles that even though they accuse you, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Friends, a changed life, a clear difference in priorities and behavior can be just as powerful a display of the Spirit's power as a dramatic, uh, miraculous healing. Again, in uh, the adult education hour, I shared the story of Pacomius. He was a fourth century Egyptian man who was conscripted into the Roman army and shipped to the barracks near Luxor. Now, when I say barracks, understand that this was something between an army base and a prison. Because remember, these were conscripts, right? Needless to say, it was a harsh life. But while there, Pacomius was impressed by a group of local men and women who would come regularly and bring him and the other inmates soldiers uh, good food and drink and the, the other necessities, the other uh, amenities, as it were, that were, you know, sort of overlooked by the Roman army. And one day, Pacomius asked these people why they would do this for men that they didn't even know, to whom they had absolutely no obligation. And the people responded that they were Christians and that it was their custom 
to visit those in prison as if they were visiting Jesus himself. That had quite the impact on Pacomius. He decided to become a follower of Jesus as well. He went on to become St. Pacomius, one of the founders of Christian monasticism. Brothers and sisters, I know that we all share this longing to see our beloved little parish, Christ our hope, grow and thrive. I'm here to tell you that isn't going to happen through adopting the latest and greatest growth strategy, though there is nothing wrong with being strategic. It's not going to come by uh, coming up with better marketing, though yes, we are aware that the website needs some help. It's not even going to come by adopting some proven and effective evangelism program, although those have their place. This church can and will grow by the grace of God when we seek what the church has always sought, the power of God manifest. Manifest in our midst as we cultivate that expectation of divine visitation, expectation of the supernatural, but also manifest in our midst as we set apart Christ Jesus as Lord in the way that we live our lives, the way we conduct ourselves among our non-believing neighbors. Because the gospel comes with power. Second, though, we see in this passage that the gospel also comes with persecution. The text continues in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. This powerful display of the Holy Spirit, people being blown away by the power of God as they witnessed the healing of a man crippled from birth, this did not exempt Paul and Barnabas from suffering. Let's not lose the impact of the account. They dragged him out of the city, presuming he was dead. Paul was beaten to within an inch of his life. He was literally left for dead by those who stoned him. Now, I've faced some moderate adversities in my life. I could even dare say that I have faced adversity for the sake of the gospel. But I have never suffered physical abuse because of Jesus. I certainly have never been left for dead. So when I read Paul's response, pardon me if it takes a moment for me to pick my jaw up off the floor. He got up, I mean that's a small miracle in and of itself, went back into the city and then went on to the next city where they established another church. It's like it was nothing to Paul. What is with that? How can that be? Well, the physical recovery issue aside, we can understand the, the spiritual and psychological element from Paul's teaching to the churches he established. We read in verse 21, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Paul is nearly stoned to death, gets up, dusts himself off, and calls it a Tuesday. Why? Because he expected. He knew that life as a disciple of Jesus means following in the path of the crucified Christ. The gospel comes with power, but it also comes with opposition. We should not be surprised when we face opposition, people of God. And I'm not talking about the opposition that frankly comes from some Christ followers bringing upon themselves by being obtuse or engaging in inflammatory blogosphere dialogues. What I'm talking about is that setting apart Christ Jesus as Lord in our hearts leads to miracles, to changes in behavior, in thought and attitude, but that won't always be popular. Claiming Christ as our first allegiance will not always fly with bosses or leaders or even friends and family who want to stake a claim to our allegiance. The gospel comes with power, but it also comes with persecutions. The final point our passage makes comes from verse 23, and it's this. The gospel comes with a plan. A plan to be lived out in an ordered community. A plan to be lived out in an ordered community. We read this in verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This helps us understand something of the historic structure, leadership, and care of the church that the Lord established from the very first days. The apostles were the God-appointed messengers that Jesus hand-selected to be his witnesses, to preach his gospel, to take his gospel presence into gospel-deficient areas. But have you noticed, if you've been here for most of the series, have you noticed that throughout these accounts... In only one case did the, disciple, uh, did the gospel rather come to one individual, the first Gentile convert, the Ethiopian ruler. And even there, you may recall, I said that one of the oldest Christian communions, the Coptic Orthodox Church, came out of him going home and sharing it with his community. In every other place that we've read about, though, the apostles did not simply gain converts, they established communities. Churches. The word ekklesia in Greek literally means simply the gathering. They established gatherings of believers. And then they appointed leaders. As St. Paul himself would later write to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4, starting in verse 11, he says, God gave the apostles, but not just the apostles, God gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul did his apostolic job in these three cities mentioned. And then he worked with these new gatherings to identify the, the shepherd teachers among them, to lay hands on and commission as presbyters, the word from which we get in English, priest. Paul, the apostle evangelist, now raises up 
priests, pastor, teachers to continue the work of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Friends, this is the pattern for ministry in the church even today. Even here in Fort Collins, in Christ Our Hope Anglican Church, God raised me up as his presbyter, his priest, after fasting, prayer, and the apostolic laying on of hands. But we're a community. We are a community, people of God, and the Lord has also given all of the other gifts that we need as a parish. I'm here to participate with the Holy Spirit and the apostolic leadership of the church to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. But it's your ministry. Be it visiting the sick or those in prison or helping one another understand how to set apart Christ as Lord of your hearts, or stewarding the finances that the faithful give to build Christ's church, we are all called and equipped to minister, to minister to one another and to the world. The gospel comes with a plan to live it out in an ordered community. Because when we walk as a community, trying to live like Jesus is Lord it has an even greater impact. As author Graham Tomlin puts it, if someone sees you as an individual doing good, they might just chalk it up to you being a good person, a little better than the average, right? But when they see a whole community of people doing good, that's more likely to grab their attention. If an individual Jesus follower had started bringing meals to Pacomius, he might have interpreted in all sorts of different ways, he may never have asked. He was interested to know, though, what makes this group of people tick? Why are they, plural, doing this? By serving the soldiers as a group, those believers in Luxor grabbed Pacomius's attention. Likewise, when opposition comes, it's the community that we need to continue to support us in our faith. We don't need to face spiritual opposition on our own, people of God. Which means, by the way, we need to open up to one another when we are facing opposition and share that with one another, that we might bear one another's burdens. The gospel comes with an ordered community. Yes, it will come with opposition, but it will also come with power as we live it out together. And that is far more effective in opening new gospel-deficient territory than any spiritual survey ever could be. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, by your Spirit, we do seek both your face and your hand, Lord, that you would move among your people that we would see and know your presence in our midst. Lord, continue to do that work of cultivating an expectation as we come to your table, as we come into worship together. And then, Lord, use those encounters to shape our lives that we would walk together setting you apart as holy 
making you our first allegiance and priority and provoking those around us to ask, why are you doing that? 